You're listening to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Ross. And I'm Melvin. On this episode, we'll be catching up with the big finish adventures of the 8th Doctor, Liv and Helen, now that the format for this team has moved away from the series of four-part box sets to more standalone releases with two or three stories instead of the overarching arc of Dark Eyes, Doom Coalition, Ravenous or Stranded. So the first two volumes of this are What Lies Inside and Connections, uh, which comprise five stories which we'll be discussing. But if you haven't listened to them, beware, there probably will be spoilers. We'll be, we'll be discussing these stories in detail. One time, one place. I don't know how you humans do it. There's a whole eternity out there to explore. You just need the right team beside you. Livchenko, medtech from Kaldor. Not planning on going back anytime soon. Helen Sinclair. Once I studied history, now I get to live it. Live it, eh? I thought that was my job. Oh, very funny. Though they can have their drawbacks. Hey, the jokes you make, you can hardly complain. Just a group of friends, travelling the universe, having fun. What could possibly go wrong? So, Melvin, welcome to your first Trap One. Thank you. It is an absolute joy and a privilege to be here. And I'm glad that you finally allowed me to come on the podcast after badgering you for at least the last <laughs> three months. <laughs> well, thank you. We appreciate you uh, joining us. Um, You're a big fan of the Eighth Doctor's audio adventures? I am a massive, massive fan of the Paul McGann audio adventures. Uh, if you want me to describe it really quick, uh, I, I more or less started with Big Finish. The same time I started with Paul McGann, which was in uh, probably early 2012, because I had just had ACL ligament replacement surgery on my right knee and needed something to like keep me going on my uh, uh, on my stationary bike, which you can see right behind me. Uh, and you know, I found Big Finish and more or less started with uh, uh, Storm Warning, and especially those those early McGann adventures, those 30 minute. Things that were perfect. They were perfect because I got on the bike, rode my bike, and then when the theme song went off, like that was, I was done and just became absolutely hooked from there. I mean, I started pre ordering uh, with Dark Eyes One and haven't looked back. They really hold up. Me and Vic, Melvin, on our show, we do every doctor and all their stories, but we jump from one to two to three. And for Paul McGann, we did the movie and then we're doing the audios uh, starting with Storm Warning. I think we're. We're up to never. I think we're up to Neverland is our next one. So we're almost at the end of that before we get into the Divergence era, which I which I I, I love that era. But I know we're not here to talk about like the. We're going to do that on a different episode, I believe, which I am very excited about that as well. But yeah, no, I'm really excited uh, for this new era, especially of uh, McGann Audio Adventures. Like you said, Mark, you know we've had a a good like eight to ten year run of the the four box set sagas which for me i mean these are my stories this is this is my this is my soap opera and the fact that we get like literally three of the best actors in the uk (laughs) talking rubbish for like four hours at a stretch like that is a that is a gift and that's not even counting like sometimes i will literally only listen to behind the scenes stuff because i just love listening to them talk about how much fun they're having talking rubbish for four hours it's amazing uh, Nicola Walker, even more so. Isn't she a little bit bigger than Paul McGann at this point? I, I'd say they probably both, uh, both Nicola Walker and uh, Hattie Monaghan, probably both on TV more than Paul McGann in the UK. She, I mean, because Walker's got, what, two, three series? She just left one. I love the, the Miss Cold Cat. Yeah, that's a great show. Yeah, I love her. She is unforgotten. Liv is my favorite uh, Eighth Doctor companion. Nominal. 
Yeah, so she she's the sort of lead character in a series called Split over here that's on BBC One, uh, which is uh, which which plays a lawyer. That that's a really good show. Uh, so yeah, she's a she's a very uh, recognisable face, definitely in uh, on UK TV. And and Hattie Monaghan, she's been in a few movies as well, hasn't she? I think she in the live action Beauty and the Beast. I think you're right in saying. And and she's uh, I, I it just caught me off guard because I didn't notice the first time I watched the trailer. She's going to be in the new Luther. Oh really. I didn't Which know is that. incredible. She's like, you know, in the in that sort of top five names build. So apparently she's not only in the new Luther, she's got a prominent role in it, which is, that's incredible. But yeah, Hattie first came to my attention uh, because I used to be an academic in a previous life. Um, uh, so I'm a big fan of period dramas anyway. But when she did the uh, Jane Austen adaptation of Sense and Sensibility with Charity Wakefield back in, I want to say, 08, 09. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, just, I'm a huge fan of all three of them. Uh, aside from their Doctor Who work, and and uh, obviously a kind of a, a jumping on point for new listeners as well with the, with the end of that sort of um, four story box set era. So yeah, as he's he's uh, you know been done in the TV show a few times, they they start with a Dalek story because that's that's going to sort of draw people <laughs> in. Uh, it's a great way of uh, of getting new uh, new listeners aboard. Uh, so uh, do you tell us about Paradox of the Daleks, Ross? All right. Paradox of Daleks is by John Dorney. Uh, John Dorney is probably the most prolific Big Finish writer. I like to refer to him as the Robert Holmes of Big Finish. Mm. <laughs> He's one of my favorite. And this, it's, a simple, it's a simple time travel story. The TARDIS team arrives on a space station doing time experiments, and the Daleks are there. At every turn, they're fine. There is more going on here and they are affecting time itself. No. Um, I like this one. I had to listen to it three times because I'm pretty good at time travel sci-fi because that's even beyond Doctor. That's my thing. But it this one was very complicated. And not, mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just you had to be paying attention. Yeah, definitely. I think it was it was well done for for all the overlapping time travel that happens in it uh, to make it make as much sense as it does. I think is a really really good achievement from the writing and the direction and the performances. And I think the first episode is is quite serious, and then it sort of gets funnier the more you realize what's going on as well, um, yeah. and you realize why the guest characters are so bewildered um, as, as things go on as well, which is a really nice recurring joke when they, they keep telling you, oh, pretend, pretend you don't know what's happening. And they go, yeah, I think that'll be fine. I yeah, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that. And because, and I listen, one reason I went back to listen is to make sure that all the clues were there. Mm-hmm. And they are, I mean, they're not blatant and they're not, you know, you couldn't figure it out with the first thing. But as you get deeper into it, he goes, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, now I get it. Well, it's interesting you would compare him to Robert Holmes, and I get it for his prolificness. But for me, John Dorney is, is almost – he's almost entered a sort of Stephen Moffat uh, 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 sort of realm as far as his writing goes. Because I think, you know, as far as – you know, especially his writing for The Eighth Doctor, which he's been doing it consistently and has been not only the most prolific, but I think the best character writer – for the eighth Doctor range since uh, Dark Eyes Four, when he did he did he did the first story in that one, A Day in the Life, I think, or mm. A Life in the Day. Oh, I love that. But, one. but that yeah. story is similar because it is also a time a time loop story, and he has this. Uh, when I was comparing him to Moffat uh, uh, in terms of the complexity of the narrative, he really works at 
structure of narrative. I mean, there's the one in uh, Stranded, which ran backwards and, you know, other stories that he's written where the structure of the narrative is as important as the narrative itself, but he never sacrifices plot cleverness for character beats. Like they're, they're, mm. he integrates both and is, is really, really good at that. And uh, the, I want to say, I can't remember the name of the Salzburg, the, um, yes, it, fairy tale of Salzburg and better watch out in ravenous two. Just beautifully told stories. Like you say, the characters are fantastic yeah. and the way it's structured, mm-hmm. the way the story is being told. And then that becomes part of the story. Uh, that's, that's one of my all time favorites. I think that's, that's John Donnie, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. But the other yeah. thing I love about him is, and you were saying episode one is, is, is somewhat serious and somewhat more, uh, uh, just sort of direct, but it starts out, and I love this. I love John Dorney. I love the way he writes these characters. He knows them so well because for me, a lot of the highlights of these sets aren't. It has little to do with the plot and more to do with the interactions. Just the sort of like roommate ness of it. Mm-hmm. Like you, the when it starts out, there's a full like minute and a half before the story even gets going where they're arguing about whether or not there's a, a, a bakery on the TARDIS or whether the TARDIS <laughs> is, is, uh, has gone wrong or whatever. And Liv and Helen apparently like have going wagers on when the TARDIS is next going to break down. Yeah. And <laughs> I just love, I just love that the, the, again, it's just like, a they're, they're friends, you know, they're, 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 they're mates, they're chums. They're, uh, uh, it's sort of like a, 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 a really sort of chosen family sort of relationship. And I know David Richardson in one of the, uh, 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 behind the scenes moments says that there's there's a quality but in the way that they act together that you can imagine he, he literally says Paul, Nickel, and Hattie going on adventures together mm-hmm. and it's scenes like that where they're talking about oh I found pastries or like oh the TARDIS has gone wrong the TARDIS has gone wrong now you've got Liv in it you know it's just like I love those interactions they mean like as much to me as anything else in the story yeah, I, I must say uh, I was so relieved because it seemed like Liv was being written out at the end of Stranded Four, um, mm-hmm. where she uh, and we we now know that 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 is ultimately what she does after traveling with the Doctor um, mm-hmm. is that she uh, you know she settles back down in contemporary Earth with her partner and we've sort of seen a little bit of that in the Ninth Doctor adventures as well, which is really nice. But we don't know how long she continues to travel with the Eight Doctor for. And I was so relieved that she wasn't permanently mm-hmm. written out because they did a similar thing with Evelyn Smythe, didn't they? Where we saw her yes. final adventure, but then we got some we got some further ones as well. So yeah, I'm I'm so pleased that the the team remains intact for for these ongoing adventures. Oh yeah, I mean for my money, the end of and that was a Dorney story also. The end of Stranded Four. I mean he wrote the finales for two, three, and four in Stranded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that for me, for my money, that is maybe the best companion leaving story that I've experienced, at least, at least as far as big finish goes, because Liv, you're right. I mean, she's absolutely a, 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 a central part of this team and my big finish experience anyway. And the way that she was both written out and not written out was, was, I mean, I cried at the end of that for that, for that mm-hmm. reason, like that Liv wasn't going anywhere. I stopped it when she left and was like, I had to yeah. take a breath because I didn't want her to go. But I and I and I kind of figured throughout the story that is okay. They're gonna they're gonna use this story to write her out, you know. And then I was very happy when she wasn't. And it was it's always good. She is like I find her just her and McGann and um, Hattie's chemistry is just it it's on above par. I could see them just someone you know. It, it, 
I could see them bringing him in and doing, let's do some eight doctor on TV and we'll just use these characters. Well, it's the great thing about starting a new era and uh, a new era with these new box set format is that they get along so well, you're just thrown immediately into it. And there's no need to really introduce them because the way they get along is your introduction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You don't spend any time doing setup. It's art. You, you can just throw them into the story in the first five minutes. Yeah. But also with this new format, they have to be – the writers have to be a little tighter because they don't – there's nothing to carry on. And even in the box that you had, the little one-and-done stories – in each set that really doesn't – I always thought they always had one that you could just listen to by mm-hmm. itself. But that – the economy of what they have to write makes – you know, I like that. I like this – I like the 45, 50-minute format for Big Finish. I have since they switched out of the traditional four-episode format. I think it allows you to get stories like this that are a little better structured because you don't have to have an artificial cliffhanger – so you can have, you know, because most of us just listen to them straight through anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I've ever kind of listened to one one episode at a time and jumped around because, you know, if I turn it on, I want to listen. But these, this one was great. And th- that the two parts were different in, you know, in tone was really nice because, you know, it was really kind of dark and heavy. And then by the end, you're just having it's a fun ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think you're really worried for the characters because there are scenes of, of some of the main characters being exterminated in it, um, mm-hmm. which uh, yeah, which, which makes it very dramatic. And there's a lot of hints that maybe the master's in it, or maybe there's an evil time lord. Uh, and plus, you know, the Daleks add, adds a weight to them to them being there as well. You've got Nicholas Briggs, you know, doing, doing all the voices. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, just a, an absolutely uh, yeah, fantastic story in it. And then and by the end, yeah, the uh, the humor in it. Uh, rising from the situation is uh, is fantastic. It's so funny, the especially the scene where, and I sort of wish that they had let uh, Nicola and Hattie, Nicola and Hattie, have a turn with the with the ring modulator. Yes, but yes. when they were switching back and forth between um, break a leg and uh, and uh, what's his name, <laughs> uh, uh, Jim uh, uh, Petum is like, uh, what is your fascination with breaking people's legs? So I mean. That's, yeah. One of the other great things about the, especially the two Dorney stories in these two sets that we're looking at is, uh, is not only does he write, you know, intricately plotted narratives that also deliver character moments, but he also does the sort of metafiction thing where he's constantly talking uh, and making fun of and bringing up and lampooning uh, uh, things like cliches. So, you know, you get those constant returning gags in the Paradox of the Dogs and the Here Lies Drex about just turns of speech where someone will say a cliche and then they'll pick it apart for like 30 seconds. But it doesn't interrupt the story and it doesn't uh, it doesn't disrupt your enjoyment of, of what's going on. Yeah, and I think that's what's nice about having a character like Liv who isn't from contemporary Earth. So she she does question uh, the, those sort of things, although she has now obviously mm-hmm. through Stranded spent a bit of time mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, in sort of 21st century London. So she does know a bit more. Um, but mm-hmm. you can also do things like that with Helen because she's from the 1960s, isn't she? So she's uh, she's not au fait with modern day stuff. And I know the TV series is very, very resistant to not having a companion from contemporary Earth. But I think you can reflect contemporary Earth by having people who aren't familiar with it and have to learn about it. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really good way of doing it. And, you know, in the 
in the classic series we did used to get that so yeah i hope one day in the in the modern series we get either an alien companion or a companion from the past again because i think it's uh it, it, it is a good way of of you know sort of learning about things that are happening in the current because the companion has to learn and process it as well and it's one of the other strengths about having this particular team is that and it's something that struck me since Liv joined in Dark Eyes 2 is that this is and and then when Hattie joined in Doom Coalition 1 is that this is an adult this is adult Doctor Who you know mm. not as in risque but it's not someone asking childlike questions in other words like they're they're coming at it from a, a, a lived experience point of view so the questions they ask the way they approach things is it's simply more head-on and it's less you know the the format that we're used to, which is what's that, Doctor? What are, mm-hmm. what are we doing, Doctor? Uh, that sort of thing, and more sort of direct and head on. And I, I always love that approach. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Professionals and very experienced and educated in their own fields, and, and as you say, that mm-hmm. informs their approach to things. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, that does work brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. and I love that too because they always yeah. make that joke about you know uh, McGann's like I'm a doctor, yeah. and <laughs> Nichols like, well, I'm a do- I'm I'm a doctor. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm actually. And of course, a doctor, Hattie yeah. has a doctorate also. So yeah, yeah I mean, they are <laughs> yeah. extremely educated, educated people. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things about the seriousness that you were bringing up earlier, earlier, is another factor about this team which separates it from me from a lot of uh, other audio Doctor Who, is that the sense of peril is real. Like these, this TARDIS team, they're used to being in life or death situations. They know that they could die at any time, and that's something we'll come back to in other stories. But that peril is real. Like you don't know what their story is. Unlike some of the other companions where we know their exit, we know, we know that their, their sort of trajectory that this is sort of, it's as I was saying earlier, this is sort of my soap opera. This is my stories. This, this is an ongoing, this is really the only doctor uh, companion team that we don't know what the end is. Like Mm -hmm. their, their story is as linear as you can get. And that is, it's really a triumph that they've been doing this sustained, development and storytelling for it's it, it, we're going on 10 years now with since Liv joined and that's incredible is Liv like the now the longest running companion <laughs> if you if you treat big finish as equal in part that i mean i i couldn't speak to that factually that's a lot uh, of it, but she's done she must be we're, yeah close if not if not the longest running because i think uh, we're definitely yeah. getting to, up to her with uh, probably close on 70 episodes now Wow. Yeah. And she's, I love her. She's in charge. One thing I like about this TARDIS team, the doctor is not the mm-hmm. boss. He, and he, he knows it, <laughs> you know, lives in charge. Liz, Liz gives marching orders. And I think, uh, particularly the next story when we get onto it, you know, the, the mm-hmm. doctor yeah. is, is, is not right. Um, and, yep. uh, yeah, in, in a way that, because it's more of a story that requires sort of emotional intelligence. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and Helen is, uh, well, Helen and Liv are both making really good observations and points and the doctor won't listen. I think that's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that speaks to that. But yeah, as you say, now, I think the eighth doctor adventures have always been that little bit more exciting with big finish for that reason, because, uh, well, you had a few years where he was the current doctor and mm-hmm. as you say that you, you didn't know, you know, how or when or if he regenerated and that kind of thing. So there was, it was always quite exciting. These are great. I, and I'm, bl- I'm glad they're back to these one and dones or not back to, but they, I don't think they've ever really done these for him. Well, I mean, that's the other thing we were talking about this, the, the change in format, like the McGann audios have almost always been at the forefront of the, 
of the format because I mean, I mean, Unit Dominion, I think, was one of the first box sets that I listened to. I think that was maybe their first box set, and then the the next one was was Dark Eyes, uh, and yeah. and you know the the fact that I think it was Eccleston maybe uh, where we where the transition happened to to trying the three story, if not the trilogies in the main range, but like as a as selling it as a single product the the three hour box set and I think it like I, I I mean I love these sets there's so much flexibility in that two in that three hour thing because like this first one uh, um, which one is it with what lies inside you can do a two parter and a one parter or with connections you can do three one parters like there's there's so many different ways to approach narrative and storytelling uh, but but have it in a way that is that's easily accessible and easily digestible even if you're not familiar with the range. So the the second story in what lies inside is the Dolby Spook. Okay, and I will introduce that one. So the Dolby Spook is by Lauren Mooney and Stuart Pringle. Uh, they have co-written several stories in the monthly Torchwood range, and one for the River Song box set. Um, the one with uh, I haven't heard it yet. The one with Ray Bloody Purchase um, <laughs> from uh, Toast of London. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And this is their first Doctor Who adventure for Big Finish. Uh, the Dolby Spook finds the Doctor, Liv, and Helen on the Isle of Man in, I think it's the 1930s-ish, mm. uh, investigating rumors of an enchanted stoat or weasel or uh, – uh, I don't even know what a mongoose is. I think I've <laughs> seen a taxidermied one before, but I, I just imagine – It's kind of like a I weasel. I imagine it's sort of weaselish, yes. It is, yeah. It's a sit from Southeast Asia to kill snakes. Yeah, so they're very, uh, they're very interested in this enchanted weasel, and off we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a new a double. That's a new euphemism right there. <laughs> Anyways, I love this one too. I mean, I love all these stories. I just, I, I will do anything. I will, I will, I will buy. McGann, Walker, and Morahan stories until they stop doing them. Like, mm. I don't care what, what they do. I will listen. Like, uh, this one, again, uh, in terms of just random conversations. And I love that all of the writers, I mean, even uh, 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 Lauren Mooney and Stuart Pringle, who have never written for this team before, they and, and maybe there's something with the actors themselves, that maybe they bring this, regardless of who's writing. But it's in the writing as well, because you get that, that, that scene right at the beginning, again, where it's nothing to do with the plot, uh, they step out and and Helen is just enchanted to be at the seaside. And she's like, all the best things are here. And Liv says, like what? And she's like, toffee apples, uh, donkey rides. Like these are the things, th- this is everything. You know, everything you'd want is here. Toffee apples and donkey rides. I'm like, I, I just love that. I absolutely, I can't, I, will, I rewind that over and over and over again. Like it takes me so long to get through these stories because they will have these interactions that, have nothing to do with the plot, and they mm. just absolutely delight me. Because there's something, there's the delivery. And again, these are three of the best actors in the UK. And it's it's the, the, the way that they use and manipulate their voices in these simple nothing moments is, it's such a treasure. Toffee apples yeah. and donkey rides. Absolutely love it. I really like this one because of... Um and I, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on your show or when you've been on my, but there's a difference between American science fiction and British science fiction and American horror and British horror. Yorial's is creepier than ours. Ours doesn't really get creepy. It's more jump scare. 
you know, but there's something about this. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the fog. I'm seeing, you know, all the things that the spook and the little girl, you know, I can visualize how it would be constructed by, you know, in that mode. And there's a lot of fun in it, but I also found this one really kind of creepy. And I love it. I love it when they, to do creepy on audio, I used to thought was impossible. I was like, you know, I didn't, how are you going to do a creepy story? Big Finish does it really well. Uh, and these, I, I don't listen to the Torchwood stuff, so I've never heard anything by these guys. And this was really good. This one was, I thought, and it, it, I was about halfway through before I bought in and went, okay, now I got you. You know, now I see what's going well, on. For me, part of, part of the way that they sold it was, Again, it's the it's the character stuff. It's the character work because, you know, yeah, it is creepy and yeah, it, is, it does have a sort of folk horror aspect to it. But there's also the emotional link between Helen and Vori, uh, where she recognizes her own past. And you know, again, this I guess this yeah, this was this must have been set sort of 1933 because Helen mentions that this was the year I was born and really has mm-hmm. that sort of idea, not necessarily of the economic despair, which I mean, they really lean into how how impoverished this family is and how remote they are. Mm. Um, but, you know, that again, that, that, that emotional link that Helen has with Vori, seeing her be manipulated and, and, um, and shut down so many times by her sort of overbearing, overbearing father. So, you know, yeah, you get the creepiness. Yeah, you get the spookiness. You get the Doctor Who-ness of an enchanted stoat. But you also, you also have this really strong emotional through line, which, again, Hattie Morahan just absolutely sells it. Yeah, the actress uh, Felicity, Felicity Kant, who plays Vori, is amazing. Yes, I li- and I liked listening to her because doing. Ki- I know they never use kids, but I thought the son they were using a kid. When you hear her, yeah, when you hear her in the behind the scenes, and you realize how young her voice sounds, and then she she leans into that and exaggerates it more. It's very very convincing, isn't it? And I think mm-hmm. that- yeah, because I really thought. Thought it was a child. Yeah, and that adds to the to the creepiness of of it as well, in a way, because because uh, she's the only character that can see and interact with with Jeff, the uh, the one goose. Um, and yet, definitely, as you say, Melvin, it, it, it folk horror is is the thing, isn't it? You know, because it's uh, it's mm-hmm. on an island, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like the Wicker Man or something like that, where mm-hmm. everyone's uh, you know just. Uh, Kind of seemingly a little bit odd and everything like that. Just so, a bit weird, yes. Yeah, I think yeah. maybe the first time Doctor Who's been on the Isle of Man as well. I couldn't think of any, can't think of any TV shows. I couldn't think of any other big finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually not very far from where I am um, as the crow flies, but I've I've never been. It's off, it's off the coast of Cumbria uh, where I live. But uh, and and oddly enough, I have a buddy from graduate school who is originally from Hong Kong, who for some reason just moved to the Isle of Man. Right. It was literally the first thing I said on his Facebook wall when uh, when he arrived and was posting pictures. I'm like, oh, you should go check out this enchanted mong... Like, check out the story of this enchanted mongoose. <laughs> yeah, because it's based on on a true story as well, which mm-hmm. uh, I was surprised when I listened to the behind the scenes that this was a thing, but it's uh, it's not... They haven't taken the, the the a lot of the details from the original story because they it sounds like it wasn't just confined to one house. They described this mongoose was all over the island stealing mm-hmm. bus drivers' sandwiches and 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 <laughs> scratching on people's doors and that kind of thing. Like it was a much more widespread phenomenon. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, like a really uh, a really odd idea, but perfect for a Doctor Who story, I think. <laughs> 
I love it when Big Finish find those those odd little stories in someone, and because every time they go, oh, this happened. This is based on something. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> I am because I, I listen to this. Um, I, I listen to these in, in the mornings when I've been walking the dogs, and it's still dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do find it really creepy, and especially the voice that they do for for Jeff the mongoose. Uh, because initially you can only hear him quite muffled and faint in the walls and that's really creepy and it's Mm -hmm. such a weird sort of high-pitched creepy kind of voice Mm -hmm. that you don't quite know at first whether it's somebody putting the voice on or whether it is this uh this mongoose and and then the even the range in the performance of that i think going from being quite sort of playful and mischievous and then uh, later on, when he's in the TARDIS and he's, you know, kind of really weakened and and, and begging them for help, there's there's is a great performance in, mm-hmm. you know, what what sounds like a, a kind of a crazy character of the Invisible Mongoose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were talking about the muffled sound. I think uh, uh, not enough uh, podcasts, especially that review these kind of uh, that review big finish audios, uh, give enough credit to the sound design. And mm. this is uh, Benji Clifford, who who absolutely deserves uh, his flowers because he's been doing sound design for this team specifically since I want to say Doom Coalition Three. I think I looked it up last night. So every box set they've done since Doom Coalition Three, he's been the sound designer. So again, he knows how to. He knows what this team is about. He knows what these stories need, and mm. his work, especially with that mongoose voice, especially those beginning where it sounds a bit muffled. I mean, it's just it's excellent work. It's excellent work. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's uh, it's their strong suit. They have some incredible sound engineers, um, and this one going from when they're in a space station, you can hear they're in a space yeah. station. You know, there's an echo, little like metallic, and this one when they're outside, it feels like you're outside. And when they're in the theater at the start as well, even though you've got uh, maybe only four oh or five God. speaking parts, you get the sense that they're in different places, that oh, there's distance. somebody on the stage, yep. uh, that, that some of them are in the audience, and there's another audience member shouting out, and they create that mm-hmm. soundscape, that, that illusion mm-hmm. of, of a number of people there and, and speaking from different parts of the room. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly skilled. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh yeah, uh, and I think as uh, as what you mentioned as well, the, the the first hints about Helen's childhood from these two sets uh, are introduced here because Helen really empathises with Florrie because she talks about the loneliness of a childhood and not being listened to by adults and, and things like that. And there's a this happens a, a yeah. couple more times in in the Love Vampires, and then obviously comes to fruition in in Albie's Angels as well, which is the last story we'll talk about. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's really kind of a bit foreshadowing it's really beautifully sort of seeded into these stories i think that it gets you thinking about helen's background from mm-hmm. this story onwards and not only her 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 distant childhood history but also when we met her because when we met her in doom coalition she was a scholar at the british museum who was mm-hmm. passed over for tenure because you know it's the 1960s and of course you're going to promote a, a mediocre white man instead of uh, an exceptionally skilled woman so i mean it's that it's that yeah. idea that she's always been sort of infantilized by men. Yeah. Which again, I mean, you don't need to know that, but if you have been following the story again, like as far as a jumping on point, you don't need to know that, but if you do, it's, it's that much richer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause she, she'll do little things in the later when she's in the sixties talking about, Oh, this is my era. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, I understand this place. Mm-hmm. 
because this is what's expected of me. Oh, I forgot this is what's expected of other. You know. Yeah, I, I feel you like know. we should also uh, talk about Mark. What you were, what you mentioned earlier, what you gestured toward, uh, sort of at the beginning, that the doctor's wrong in this one, and I, I mm-hmm. love, I love this range specifically for that because we do get those episodes that is a sort of genre of eighth doctor episode where he is wrong-headed and pig-headed and won't listen and by the end Liv is like you know if you just listen to us we would be better off and like you were saying earlier ross Liv takes charge i think it's in one of the later stories it maybe is the love vampires where she says i'm always in charge you just never listen yeah <laughs> but we i think we should talk about that as well because I, I love mm-hmm. that they are not afraid to make this doctor as happy-go-lucky as he is, I think there's the, the reputation, and I don't understand it myself, for him being forgetful or uh, uh, sort of downbeat or that the stories are downbeat because he is always sort of go get them. Like he is always that, uh, if you remember, I think you were talking about Neverland earlier, Ross, the yeah. the sort of Tigger, you know, when he, he switches into, he splits into three doctors and one of them's like happy bouncy all the time, Tigger doctor. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, is that he can, he, he is all those things. And I love that they allow him to be wrong. Yes. Uh, and I, I agree. He is always full of joy. I don't find him to be the dark, broody doctor, except maybe when we're doing the time war stuff where it's toward the end of his life and he's avoiding the war. They, because he, he like Colin, because sometimes we make, he's asked to jump around in the doc, that his doctor's timeline that there is – when they do one where he's with Charlie again, he's a little lighter before pre-divergent, you know? Um, and then if he's doing one with uh, Sheridan Smith, he's a little more action manny. And then these, he's, they're very, this is a comfortable, he's comfortably traveling with his two best friends. But again, it doesn't mean that he he can't he doesn't get it wrong sometimes, and it reminds me of yeah, sort yeah. of episodes like Ship in a Bottle, where which is another Dorney story, uh, but uh, uh, neither here nor there, where they they argue with each other. They legitimately the three of them will argue with each other, and most of the times it's obviously you know Liv and Helen you know trying to convince the Doctor of something, but that they legitimately get into arguments, and it it has it, it is part of their relationship that that. Well, that's it. That that is part of their relationship. Is like you argue, but you go towards you know it's antithesis towards synthesis. You know you're moving from sort of chaos to making a decision. Like that's what mistakes are for. And I love that they that the that big finish writers really let Paul McGann have those kinds of stories. And what's nice about this is they it's not you know it's not just kind of manufactured for the uh, you know for the drama. Like it, it's quite logical that the Doctor here has made the conclusion that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's come from the point of view of defeating monsters and, and knowing how to use technology and having experienced these kind of psychic threats before. Liv mm-hmm. comes at it. She's had the experience in the theater where the mm-hmm. the psychic has managed to, you know, guess her name, which is an unusual name, obviously, particularly in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And that's preying on her mind, whereas the doctor dismisses it. And then Helen's coming at it from the point of view of really empathizing with the child because it reminds her of her childhood. And together mm-hmm. they, they manage to eventually kind of solve it all. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so well worked out. Yeah, I um, mm-hmm. really, uh, really think it's fantastic writing. Yep, agreed. And then the, the second collection is called Connections. And this one is made up of three stories. 
the first of which is Here Lies Drax, uh, again by John Dorney, and is a sequel to John Dorney's 2016 fourth Doctor story, The Trouble with Drax, and and takes some some themes from that or some ideas from that that uh, that Drax has managed to obtain a device that allows him to interact with his other incarnations much more than a Time Lord normally can, and uh, without you know, the doctor's problem of forgetting these interactions and everything. And mm-hmm. he doesn't cause any problems with the Blinovich limitation effect. So he's got this device throughout all his incarnations and it means that they can work together to, to do like uh, long cons basically. Um, <laughs> and that way, again, this is, it's such a fantastic story. This because about halfway through, you think you've, or I thought I'd sussed out exactly what was going on. Um, <laughs> And I thought, oh yeah, I can I can see where this is going, and I was completely completely wrong. I guess the uh, the connections with the key to time because that sort of seeded a little bit that there's these six objects and yeah. there's a reference to Romana. I thought, oh well, that's that that's that. So the main guest actor in this is Shane Ritchie as as Drax, uh, which was at the time publicised that, uh, that Shane Ritchie was playing Drax. Uh, so I guess he's probably not a very big name um, in the United States. I have no, I had no idea who he so, is until he said what he did. Now I went, oh, that's why you're famous. You're on these yeah, well, okay. he's 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 a figure over here, a bit like Bradley Walsh, in that you're as likely to see him in a soap opera as presenting a game show or on stage doing something. I think when I was a teenager, I saw him in Greece as as Danny uh, in the West End. Uh, so he, okay. so he'll do that. Uh, but then, yeah, you'll you'll see him. Uh, you'll see him on adverts. You'll see him present game shows. You know, kind of variety type stuff. But then, yeah, he's uh, for the last well, quite a few years, he's he's had kind of a recurring part in EastEnders, which is a big BBC soap opera over here. But he'll he'll come and go. Uh, I don't really watch it, but I kind of you know publicise when he comes back. And he'll come back for a few years and then disappear for a few years and uh, uh, and that type of thing. So yeah, he's he's kind of a really familiar face over here we'll do a bit of everything and uh but i think uh, you know performance here is very very good and it was nice in the behind the scenes that um that that nicola walker and everyone was, was you know, really praising his abilities as uh as a voice actor as well so uh so yeah he's he there's a few other sort of uh you know kind of minor guest parts but he's yeah he plays a very larger than life version of drax which really fits the character i think uh as the doctor Liv and Helen are invited to his funeral, um, and this is this is probably the lightest story and um, out of the five we're going to talk about, isn't it? It's uh, it's very very comedic. Yeah, it is. I I've, I had not heard the trouble with Drax. I don't. That's why I haven't listened to all the Tom Baker stuff. Yeah, and I thought it may have been a recent one, and I googled it and I said, "Oh no, you have this. You've never listened to this." It's like eight years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but but that one also uh, and it, regardless of whether Americans will will recognize the the names like the the voice the performance lets you know like and it's a very similar vocal performance and I totally understand they said in the behind the scenes that when they were doing that first one I think the the guest character there was was it uh, uh, John John Boyce is that his name John Chalice yeah John Chalice, Chalice yes. who he plays played... a character called 
Boy, Boise, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in Only Fools and Horses, which is yep. probably one of their most popular sitcom. Uh, okay, I know him. I know exactly who you're saying He's from now. Seeds okay. of Doom uh, as well, which is, you mm-hmm. know, kind of a Doctor Who fans probably. Yeah, uh, probably. yeah it's one of my favorites because when me and Dick were covering that a couple months ago, that's a dude from – I never put it together. They mentioned in the behind the scenes that they had tried to get Shane Ritchie for that one many, many mm-hmm. years ago, and it just the schedule didn't work out. But again, whether or not American audiences recognize the – the, the name the performance is big enough that you understand like why they were cast because it is a very smart it is a very smarmy very yeah. and we were talking about weasels <laughs> earlier uh very weaselly performance and I, I loved it i just loved it oh yeah it, it the, the, this and the structure of it because i'm not the biggest drax fan because i'm not a big fan of the end of the key to time you know you know at that era but I was enjoying it, and then I'm listening to it, and it's like, oh, you're doing a Guy Ritchie send-off. This is like The Gentleman mm-hmm. or one of his movies where you've got 40 moving parts, <laughs> and at the end, oh, oh, that's what went on. You know, it's that like the British heist, mo- heist movies or whatever. We have a show over here called Leverage where that group of people set up a long con and then you see what's going on and that's so when we got to it i i don't think i figured it out but when it ended up with all the people hiding stuff for him yes, was yeah. him <laughs> i was like oh this is brilliant this is brilliant and one of the yeah. one of the characters I, I think it may even be the doctor very early in the episode and and again john dorney he knows what he's doing and he knows how to lay the breadcrumbs so that when you go and listen to it for the third time, you're like, Oh yeah, it was there. And, and Stephen Moffat does that too, which is, again, I, I feel like that comparison is not in inept uh, or inaccurate uh, uh, even though it's a, a little bit of a stretch, but I think if the doctor even says early on, what if, I mean, it could be possible that all of these people could be him. Yeah. Or that any of them, I think yeah. that maybe the, the quote is like any of them could be him. Because yeah, I was curious because yeah. there was so many Draxes in the trouble with Drax as mm-hmm. to whether any of the any of the actors are the same, but I don't think anybody mm-hmm. anybody is the is the same as. Uh, no, because I went and googled it, you know, and looked, and I, but I didn't look at the cast list, and I went back to see that to check that, and Miranda Raisin is the female Drax yeah. in that, and that's way before she was playing Constance, so I don't think. I mean, they could have gotten her, but they might have gone. Nah, people might hear con- might hear Constance, so yeah. we're gonna. So it, it was all different, and it, but it was great because what I liked is the female drag sounded one way when she's playing the con, <laughs> and then they all sound no matter what regeneration drag has. Gangsters. It, it's, yeah, they're all okay. <laughs> like gangsters. Oh. <laughs> I was like, that's the one trait that's going to follow you, this this uh, English accent you picked up when you were marooned. Wasn't it he picked it up because he got stuck there for a he while? He was in prison, wasn't he, for uh, for trying to steal the crown jewels, I think. That was the... the okay, yeah, he picked it up while he was yeah. in prison, yeah. Uh, but what I love is the relationship with the Doctor, where the Doctor can't ever quite condemn him. He's mm-hmm. still, uh, you know, they've got fond memories because they were childhood friends, mm-hmm. and... The only one who didn't judge him. Yeah, you know? and he's just he's just sort of indulges him, even though um, you know he kind of stitches him up every time. <laughs> and it's uh, mm-hmm. it's so good. It make it makes me because I, I re-listened to the Trouble with Drax, and then I listened to this, and it really made me want to see more incarnations interact with Drax and see how they dealt with it. You know, like I love a Ninth Doctor Drax story. Uh, I think that would be really really interesting. 
to to see how Eccleston's doctor, you know, kind of uh, interacted with him. So yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be uh, the two working class accents. Yeah, that, I think yeah, you know. um, or how or how the thirteenth doctor, you know, if Jodie Whittaker signs up for Big Finish, you know, that again, that would be uh, that'd be really interesting. I mean, I suppose they've got that thing of post time war not having other time lords around, don't they? Which, uh, but I think if any of them survived the time war and were able to trick their way out of it, it would definitely be, be dry. Dry. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember even having listened to it three times, but it does turn out that none of them, like he, he, like Shane Ritchie of all the characters in the show is the only one who isn't Drax. Is that correct? Like he was like the temporal assassin yeah. or something like that, but only that, like the temporal assassin pretending to be Drax. Like I loved that as well. Because that is so except and 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 probably it's sort of an inversion of what you would expect from the trouble with Drax is that you know mm-hmm. your 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 big name star, you know you would expect that guy. I mean you uh, you were saying like there was all the the news the news stories and hype about him playing Drax when he doesn't he doesn't actually play Drax at all. He only plays the temporal assassin. I think that's his name. The the hyper yeah. whatever it was. Uh, the, yeah, the um, quantum assassin. I think quantum yeah, assassin. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Which uh, I think uh, doesn't the the doctor at some point say. He says something about he gives credit to the guy's branding manager or something like yeah. that for coming up with a <laughs> good name. <laughs> Which again, that's uh, Dorney. Like he loves to throw those those meta commentary jokes in there. You know, here's mm-hmm. a cool name. Let's make a joke about how it's a cool name. You know, I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And then and then uh, Shane Richard does a very exaggerated posh accent. When uh, when he's revealed who he really is that, he, that he's been putting put, putting on as well, yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's very deftly done because you would I think you would never guess that because Shane Ritchie is such perfect casting as Drax, mm-hmm. and he's the most Drax-like of all the other ones in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's yeah, it's a great rug pull, uh, definitely. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say uh, is when you were talking about uh, uh, having Drax adventures with other Doctors, is that this Drax, you know, uh, uh, and they mention it in the behind the scenes stuff that it's not a character that's been expanded on too much in, in expanded media that mm. it works so well at big finish. It works so well to have so many different actors play it. It's almost like it could become a, a sort of role like the, the nine or the 11 or, mm. you know, which they then cast, uh, wasn't it Julia McKenzie as the 12, like, have, like yeah, why, not bring, in, oh why not bring in like amazing guest actors to play this, this role? Like, why not? Mm. It's such a good idea. It's such a fruitful fruitful ground for fun and misadventures. And, you know, I was saying earlier, this is an exceptionally silly story, but, you know, in this, in, in the eighth Doctor Adventures, it feels like this is the one range of all the big finish Doctor Who ranges, at least, where, where you can do those things and people just go with it, you know? There's no problem with having an exceptionally silly Doctor Who story. Definitely. And there's definitely oh, room yeah. for it. And and uh, like I say, John John Donny's so inventive as well. You know, you've had these two stories now. They've got Drax's name in the title, and mm-hmm. and the kind of game is almost guess which characters are Drax because you're mm-hmm. aware there'll be multiple incarnations in. You know, mm-hmm. the next time, don't put his name in the title, <laughs> and then just have all these different characters. Who then it's like, oh, they're all Drax, and you weren't even ready for it. You weren't even trying to spot it. That would be uh, that would be the kind of the the next maybe logical extension of it. It'd be terrific. <laughs> I I might have to go back and listen to the Trouble with Tracks because I did do, and I love John Dorney and there's a lot of some of his I've missed because I I'm behind on some of the old you know I grew up with enough Tom Baker so I'm late to the Tom Baker big finish thing it was like ah 
that's a lot of bit of Tom Baker burnout being an American, <laughs> you know. But uh, I'll have to go back and listen to this one. It seemed like we waited so long for Tom Baker to join Big Finish, and then uh, and now that he's been doing it for a few years, there's so much material out there. It, uh, oh my God! And they they really wanted to get as much of him in the can as they sense. could while he was yeah. still able. It did, and he and it you know it's. He loved doing it. I think. I think all of them. It's like McGann didn't do, want to do it at first, and he did it, and he mm-hmm. loves it. You know, it's like wow, this is a second home, and I think it. it it's. It says so much about Big Finish, Finish as a company that when the people say they love it, they mean it. You know, and that they come back like that. Like we said earlier, that three stars of their the level of yep. this cast are like, okay, when's our next set? Oh, we get to record together again. Yeah, again, like Nicola Walker in the behind the scenes material for this specific specific story is talking about how fun it was working with Shane Ritchie, and she just always seems to be having the best. Like how how do they schedule her when she's doing six TV shows at a time? Mm-hmm. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next sort of five, six, seven years that we talk about Nicola Walker or see her have the sort of uh, ascent of, of an Olivia Coleman, like where. You know, at what point does she can she simply not do big finish anymore? Which mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that never comes because she just has, she seems to have so much fun. She may have what I call Hackman's disease, which is Gene Hackman. For the minute he started working, you'd go, "Oh, you got an Academy," but you see, he would just do everything. It's like I'm going to take the job. It's a job. I'm a gigging actor. I'm not working that day. I go. This is my job. I have mm-hmm. to do it because this could be my last job. So, and it just, they, and also they just, you know, some actors just, I have to be acting. I have to be doing it. Uh, and and in, the, in the UK, you guys have this media in America that there is none of this over here. You know, people read audiobooks. That would be the closest. Right. There's some now on Audible, they're doing more audio and plays. And I've, I've, given, I've given American produced ones a, a try from, from time to time. Like they did a... Uh, a full cast sort of audio uh, uh, sort of film version uh, or telefilm, whatever of uh, in other words, feature length of the X-Files with uh, Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny. And it, it, and this was several years ago, but it just sounded so wooden. Like it sounded like they were reading from a script, which like you're saying, that's a huge difference between, between British audio storytelling and American audio storytelling. It's like American actors just are not used to radio acting. Yeah, it's uh, the only one I've heard really uh, produced by Americans is Neil Gaiman's Sand Complete, the the, the adaptation of Sandman, his comic book, because he's doing the TV one, which he's cha- had to change because he can't use certain characters. He can't use any of the superhero universe characters, but Sandman is in DC, is in that universe. Right. So in the audio one, which has an all-star cast, like freaky, the uh, the young man that played Elton John in Rocketman. John Edgerton. Yeah, he's playing Sandman. Yeah, but it's top of the line, but it's English. I mean, it's. I think the writer, the writer and director might be an American. I'm not sure, but Gaiman is the narrator, and you have this all-star cast, and it's the best one I've heard. But nothing compared to Big Finish, especially like. Especially with this team, there's a, just a, a quality level of the performance that just is. And again, it's it's everything together. It's the sound design. It's the the score. Jimmy Robertson's score again, like the music. Mm-hmm. No matter which of these episodes we're talking about, like it never. I mean, we hear that complaint all the time about the TV show where the music is so loud in the mix that you can't hear the 
the vocal performance that you never have. I, at least I never have had that problem with, with eighth doctor adventures. Uh, I mean, from time to time you get those universe is collapsing sorts of things happening in doom coalition, but you know, for a scene where it's a little bit difficult to hear what people are saying, but it's supposed to be yeah. because you know, the universe is crumbling in the vortex and like whatever. Yeah. I, I like that. They use a score because in film you have a score and it's not, it's just, you know, it's, it's just one of a lot of levels, but an audio that they that they and the, especially in these is you can you have a score going on in the background, just faintly or just in between vocal stuff, and it's just it's wonderful. I mean, it just and the sound these are these every one we've talked about and all of them in these sets is every story has its own sound. Mm-hmm. Just this and and that creates atmosphere in such a way to very specific, like we said earlier, very specific atmospheres. The direction is also very good with this set. Um, and uh, Dave, Dave Richardson's been the producer of this group for how long, for the whole time? I think more or less. And I think uh, Ken, Ken Bentley is usually, I think he's there, he's the standard director for pretty much all of these adventures. So again, it's mm-hmm. like a finely yeah. honed machine. And I, and I don't say that in a pejorative way where it's like they're, they're taking shortcuts or anything like that. They just know how to do their jobs. Mm. And that is, it's, it's so clear. I mean, for me, and you were talking about the, the difference between sort of uh, American and British audiences and being sort of accustomed to, to audio drama as a medium, I've gotten used to it through big finish. Like, you know, that's why I can listen to sort of an X-Files one through audible and be like, this really isn't that good. I mean, it's just like the quality, like obviously, you know, you've got the, the main, the, the, you've got the stars that you want to hear, but the, the execution of it just like seems off. And that's because I've been so spoiled over the last what 11 years now, listening to, to big finish audios, just so good at it. Yeah. 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 They, they always sound more like a, uh, an audio book, a badly done audio book. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's no, and it's. I think it's a good thing that Big Finish does this. That it creates teams. It goes, you guys, here's. It's they're using the old model. I mean, producer, script editor, but it's producer slash script editor and director. That we're gonna. This is you know we're gonna work on it. We're gonna use the actors we know. We're you know. Uh, but that's definitely one of the the changes that have that 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 is happening now with these new box sets. Is that there's a new, I mean there's a new new script editor. Uh, I can't remember. I saw it on the, it was on the website. Maybe I've got it here in my, uh, I actually, I love, I love them so much. And they went to the new format that I actually bought the physical, I haven't bought physical, uh, eighth doctor since the, since the dark eyes series. But, you know, I, I just felt I was so excited about it that I had to, that I had to splurge out because I mean, it's more or less, uh, because of shipping rather than the costs, like the shipping now mm. from, from the UK, it is like $6,000. Like I had to, I had to remortgage my home. I had to sell my dog's plasma in order to afford the shipping. Um, <laughs> I did not sell my dog's plasma, um, but I believe I uh, it's not in the. Here we go. Script editor Matt Fitton and Tim Foley for for this for this particular box set. Oh, that's not a bad. That's a really good team. Yeah. Just have script editor, but, it's, but it's also a new one. I believe that the script editor had been John Dorney for a long for for at least several box sets, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this is a, this is a, a huge changeover, you know, just in terms of like who is in charge of 
the eighth Doctor Adventures now. And I think that was a big shift in the last couple of years because now we have sort of a, a script editor for the sixth Doctor Adventures. We have a script editor for, you know, that the, they're like portioning that out more to different. And they brought on some new, some younger people and younger talent to come in and do it. So, which is good, like Emily and. But, but the great thing here with like uh, Matt Fitton and Tim Foley is that these are, these are, these are some of their best writers who are now being oh, put yeah. in charge of their own playground and with absolutely no change in the quality of the stories. Amazing. No, no. Actually, I think, I think there's a little more polish to this set. I like Stranded, but this, I think this set is really, both these sets this year, is a, it's got a different kind of feel mm-hmm. to it. And I, I'm enjoying it. I really, this was all catch up. I had not bought these. And then when you offered me, asked me to be on, I said, well, I'll, I'll have to drop the bond. You can buy it's those so now. It's still worth it. It's uh, so worth it. I, I always get them. I have, I'm, I've been parsing out some stuff I'm behind on, but Eighth Doctor, Time, War Gallifrey, uh, there's some sexy stuff I like, The War Doctor, um, I'm really enjoying the Young War Doctor. Yeah, so, whether so I'm kind of jumping around with what I need. And Ninth Doctor, I got to buy the last two of yeah, those. Yeah, whether because that first one I was like, eh. the second one I was like, wow. So yeah, whether because of time constraints or or, or fiscal constraints or whatever, I've, I've sort of I've sort of scaled back my big finish purchases over the weirdly over the pandemic when you'd think I'd have more time for it, but you know the there are ones that I will not I will not give up. Like, I will not give up the Eighth mm-hmm. Doctor. I will not give up the Ninth Doctor. Like you said, Ravagers uh, was a bit spotty on, uh, uh, just a bit spotty. But it's still, it's still, you know, three more hours with Chris, e- Chris Eccleston. Like, yeah, yeah, you, oh, yeah, yeah. They were fine. They were fine. You can, you, can, you can shovel out, like, every single time. Uh, I just, I felt that the, the improvement was so mm-hmm. great with that second one. Because that second set just, and the third one just blew, but that mm-hmm. blew my mind. But I'm now. I think I'm too behind. And Roy, so. Roy Gill had a hand in in one of those, and we'll get to him very very shortly. I cannot wait to talk about yeah, yeah. Roy's, Roy's contribution here because he, for me, is is you know to say a rising star seems kind of like uh, 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 infantilizing him, and I don't mean to do that. I, I just mean rising star in terms of the in the eighth Doctor range because as I was saying earlier, John Dorney has really. Like the the stories he's written since Dark Eyes Four have been sort of the heart and soul sort of character beats that have been sort of the most sort of emotionally resonant since Dark Eyes Four, and I feel like mm-hmm. since sort of what is it Stranded Two with Unit Dating that Roy Gill has really come up sort of out of uh, seemingly out of nowhere for this range and like really taken like taken charge, taken the lead. But we'll get mm-hmm. we'll get there. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of us. Yeah, so uh, the second story in the Connections box set is The Love Vampires. All right. The Love Vampires is by James Kettle. He has written for the Ninth Doctor, Fifth Doctor, uh, River and Missy, and that's one of my favorite Missy stories, Two Monks, mm-hmm. One Missy. Yes. Um, okay, oh, my God. I, I will say this every time I mention the monk. BBC, Rufus Hound needs to be the monk on television. Yeah. And Jenna Whelan needs to be oh the God. monk on television. You know, you can't go wrong. I, I, it took me a while to buy into the Missy sets, but once they put her torturing the monk, I was all in. Um, and this story is the TARDIS trio lands on a space station. They soon, soon, soon join the crew in being haunted by their lost loves. And I'm going to leave it at that because this is, I love mm-hmm. this concept. Mm-hmm. 
I really love it. And the self-examination of how that first love is would be a, a powerful psychic weapon. Because, mm-hmm. you know, unless you ended up with your first love, there's always something about that one. And, and it was a neat way to do a vampire mm-hmm. story. And to say that, yes, all the mythos, the cross, this and that, would, there's a reason those things work on vampires. Because that's the, you know, those rules are passed down somehow. And I just thought it was amazing. Um, this is, this one I was kind of, when it first started, I wasn't sure. I was like, hmm. And then as you saw each person encounter their first love, it was really powerful, I thought. Yeah, and it's another really important one, I think, for Helen, isn't it? As as we mm. build up to Alvy's angel, yeah, mm-hmm. and you realise uh, a lot of it hinges on a relationship with her dad, and this would be another reason why she felt so isolated from him, and and you know what happened to her brother and things. So that you know that that her first love was a woman, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of really opens that up and, and and ties into the next story. So I think I feel like it's a big story for her. Uh, a really, really interesting one. Uh, and with Liv as well, I think that's an interesting little sort of vignette that we get that her first love was, uh, and they point this out in the behind-the-scenes material, is is a doctor-like figure mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, you know explains why somebody may be as strong-willed and independent and, and they, as, as Liv does travel with, with the doctor because there's that echo of, uh, you know, of, the, of this previous relationship. So that that was a really interesting point for her. And then with the doctor, you really feel like they're they're going somewhere way beyond <laughs> beyond what we've uh, what we've seen before. Um, it's uh, they made me look. I thought it. They, I really thought. Oh, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> are we getting? Are we going there? Are you going there? Are you really gonna? Can't put something in canon like that. Yeah. That's a yeah. Big... When they dropped that bomb about the the child that they had together, I was like, "Whoa, amazing!" <laughs> <laughs> I really, I was thinking, Jason, hey, Gaglery, you got a big pair because I think that would be people are going to lose their minds. I was sitting here entertaining the thought of Paul McGann being a deadbeat dad for a minute. I'm like, "Whoa, that's crazy." <laughs> <laughs> well, because I'd fairly recently listened to this fourth Doctor story, um, I can't quite remember which set it was. It might have been Solo, where they they reveal that um, that the Doctor and the Master, as as school children, did something which erased their real names from the memories and the Time Lord records, which was felt like it was encroaching into sort of, uh, you know, the Doctor's Child in, in a way that they wouldn't normally do. And I felt mm-hmm. like it was maybe building on that a little bit as well. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. they did it a little bit there. Is is this the next step? And this is this huge thing. So, uh, yeah, it kind of really, ears pricked up, almost like hairs on the back of an next stuff. And I was like, wow, this is this is great stuff. And mm-hmm. then there's a tantalizing hint that, that it, it was partially based on maybe a real person. So, yeah. Really yeah. And I love the name the realist you know because i could see a time lord taking that as a Mm. as a name as a moniker you know and i because they're running out of them yeah yeah (laughs) you know they really are running out of them there i mean i think the 11 is my favorite in recent years Mm. because i like the idea that each personality 
It's just yeah. the number. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Mark Bonner fan, mm-hmm. but and that whole concept. But I just kind of love that her name is the realist. It was like, what does that say about the doctor? Yeah, because he's yeah. not a realist. Yeah. He's an idea. He's an idealist. He's, that's the opposite of the doctor would be a realist. This is another one of those uh, sort of concepts like Mark was saying earlier about Drax, where I would, I really wouldn't mind seeing another, seeing that character sort of incorporated into, into later, into later stories, even as much as, uh, as much as you say, and as much as he admits that there was, you know, uh, most of it was made up, but, you know, sort of rooted in, and I'm like, Ooh, you know, that sounds like a, a an interesting direction we could go in for a, for a later, a later story. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, I quite like, and maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit here, but I quite like the idea that it's sort of Time Lord students mm-hmm. pick a name like that because mm-hmm. that seemed to be the the implication. So that this character calls herself the Realist, and there's the Doctor and the Master and the Eleven and things. And then you know when we've seen other Time Lords who are in the High Council or the, you know that, that they've maybe grown out of that and and use their names like Barusa or. Uh, you know, heading and different things like that. Whereas the Doctor mm-hmm. and the Master didn't grow out, grow out of it. And when they became renegades, that became their name and their personality. So it, it's not explicitly said, but it felt like that was an interesting way of taking it. That, you know, the reason why some Time Lords have a name and some of them have a title is, you know, that they all do it at the Academy. And then some of them kind of grow out of it and some of them don't. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also that, that, that yeah. implication or that inference, I should say, where uh, he asks, the doctor asks her what he should call her. And she said, well, you had so many names for me back in the day. And I just, I love that that that, that isn't followed up. It's like, what yeah. is that? What, what could that? And again, just the idea that, that this, uh, that this uh, entity, uh, I don't know, did, did, did they ever like actually come up with a name for them? I don't think so. No, no which I love that. I love that. No, I just think it's like that's you know, it's something they're tied to the sun. They're they're just tied to this sun or whatever. It's kind of like in forty two yeah. where it's in a uh, like a it, it doesn't really yeah, matter. Whatever that, and I love that, that too. There isn't a, like a name assigned to them, but there's a because that sort of in, increases that sort of creepiness factors that you can't put a finger on what it is. But I love that idea that that the doctor goes in into this confrontation with an idea in his head because he knows that this entity like manifests and plays with that idea. So thinking about this exchange between them as uh, sort of, it's, it's not dissimilar to what is it? The, when the, I love that scene. It's so weird in uh, what is it? The three doctors where um, the doctor is having that sort of weird mental wrestling match with Omega, mm. like that there's something like that going on here is like McGann is having a confrontation with a thing that he is making up as he goes along yeah. that the thing yeah. is playing. Like, I love that idea. It's so weird. Yeah. I saw it kind of like the way you're seeing it, that he's in that kind. Cause they, everybody goes in kind of like a hypnotic mm. state when they have their, their interaction. Mm. They could be in a room full of people, but they're just mm-hmm. staring because they're doing that. But in his, you see that he's at the end when he's stopped. He's not talking to this made up person. He's talking yep. to the creature and they have a conversation. Yep. And he does that. He, it's a great Doctor Who moment, too. It's like, well, no, I was just I made this up. I needed to mm-hmm. talk to you and you didn't realize yeah. it. And now this is what we're going to do. And you're going to leave us all alone. And it's just great. And it's a great, it's that, that great moment. And um, uh, the actress who played the realist, uh, really, I really loved her interaction with, uh, 
Paxi Vernon. Uh, I actually, I absolutely love her performance in this. That it's so very subtle and very not underplayed, but it's just when the conversation turns, she doesn't miss a beat, and they're so good in it. Um, I really enjoyed this one. I was surprised. I have, and I, I want to say, I have a moment with where they. Ba- when they smash, have to break the base. And give gave the because these aliens have numbers instead of names, so they're a little dehumanized by that in a way. Yeah, but when the what is it? The twenty one. The twenty one. No, fifteen is like. Uh, no, this is the base, and it's a double base, and he makes a double base mm-hmm. joke. And I love her line: "Who would have wooden bookshelves on a yeah. spaceship?" <laughs> <laughs> And all I could think of is his council room, which is just nothing but yeah. wooden bookshelves. <laughs> so, but no, it's just I, I like this. I like this this kind of like it's not a science fiction story that has character studies. It's a character studies yeah, that has some yeah, science fiction. Exactly. Yeah. Is it? Is it? That, yes. That's just window dressing. But we want to talk about Liv's first love and why she is yeah. who she is. And her, that her first love is so different than her eventual yeah. partner in a lot of ways. And strong-willed, but, you know, yeah. different. And then um, that thing about uh, with Helen, which I didn't see coming because I don't think they had inferred. No, I can't remember anything. Anything about her. She even had a romance. Well, they, they, even, they even sort of uh, uh, lamp. Uh, what is it? I think the word is lampshade or hang a lamp on it uh, later in the episode because they're asking her. They're asking each other, like, what was your experience? And it's this sort of weird thing where and I found it. I found it extremely interesting because I know uh, shout out to my friend Yana on Twitter who ships live in Helen like there's nobody's business. I am not particularly a live in Helen shipper myself, but you know, I respect uh, people who do have that. Uh, uh, sort of take on their characters because for me in this story that that really telling line in that scene is where it seems like Liv and the doctor have this almost asexual view of Helen because they ask her Mm -hmm. you know what did you see and I think it's uh, Liv who makes the joke uh, something like oh what was your vision a glass of warm milk and an old book yeah (laughs) like that's but that's how they I mean they don't they don't it's just interesting that as much time as they've spent with her like they don't she doesn't yeah. share. I mean, and they, they make. She's a woman of her time, and we're going to find out why in the next story, why she would yeah. be guarded, because yeah. she's been out to the universe and seen a different moveset, different moral prep of barriers and other things. But she's a woman born in 1932. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and, that's a, and that's an intriguing part about this story as well, is that even though the, the focus for the love vampires happens to be and is explicitly sort of stated as uh, romantic love, that it doesn't necessarily mean that in the story itself. I mean, as they say in the, uh, when they're talking about um, sort of the, the doctor's take on it, like that this, it's, it's something he made up. So, you know, there isn't that sort of emotional, you know, for, to some extent, there isn't that sort of emotional or uh, 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 sexual or romantic thing that that is being played with as much or you know the in the behind the scenes where they're talking about what you brought up earlier mark the what live what draws live to the doctor is this sort of echoes of it may have been a romantic relationship that she had with this guy but we know that that's not her relationship to the doctor and so you have to think about Mm -hmm. like attraction in a broader in a broader way and i think the love vampires as a story really does that it talks about you know what are we drawn to what draws our 
to other yeah. people. Mm. And, and how that a first love does not reflect what you will search out for in a partner mm. when it mm-hmm. later, because it's yep. a first. And then they're all, and everybody's first love is, you know, very unique mm. to them. It is a unique thing. And it has nothing to do with how they're going to mm. end up. And that I think is what what, you know, what makes that that love vampire concept so interesting and appealing is that there's something in you that remembers what that messy or what messy or exciting or you know uh, 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 draining or clumsy, clumsy. Yeah, all of these ideas. I mean that's and that's literally one of the notes I wrote about the the Helen scene is that like this is sort of you know because uh, 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 hers is yeah, messy fumbling around behind a boathouse like that there's uh, you know the, uh, the the intensity of that emotion is what is sort of being drawn on rather than the the specifics of the relationship you know yeah because it's not you're really never sure that that one person is it it's just that that girl mm-hmm. at school you know what I mean that and school because Helen she's a professional the doctor's a time lord you know, and the other aliens, I mean, it doesn't matter as much. It, theirs is just a set of the rule here. They've had this. This is the rule of this vampire. Now our three big people and then we'll defeat them. And it, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was it's one of those things that could you do this on television or is it better being done in audio? You know, I mean, I could see a way to ways you'd have the, you know, that. Okay, we're going to put two actors in a black background, or we're going to do all these big set pieces when people go into their visions, or you know, do too much, or is it like, does it work better in this medium because it's just conversation? Oh, it's, it's more intimate that way, isn't it? When it's two people can hear their voices, and yeah, it's really you kind of you're it's it's over most the point that you're kind of eavesdropping on a conversation you shouldn't hear. Uh, that you're just off to one side and this is going off in your periphery. It's just, I mean, it's well done. And it just, it's a great way of telling a story. I thought this is some of this, uh, parts of this one were just for me as the person who did theater and stuff like that. I go, these are great scenes. This is what, this is why these actors are doing it. Oh, that's, uh, this is all worth it. This five minute scene I get to do or that five minute scene or this story I got to be part of. Okay. I was just going to say like one of the sort of dangerous things about a story like this is that you assume, and I think you were gesturing toward it earlier that the doctor experiences love the way that humans do. And like having that assumption, which I feel like I I just, that sort of makes me uncomfortable because I feel like the doctor, you know, is sort of their experience of love is it's gotta be, it's gotta be radically different than the -hmm. way that we think about it simply for, you know, the span of their lives that sort of thing. That's the one thing that sort of always made me a little bit uncomfortable with the river doctor relationship is, you know, can you really sustain something like that for hundreds and thousands? Of, it just seems, it seems weird to assign sort of that kind of, but I get that the, that the love vampires and that's one of the reasons why McGann was able to manipulate them so easily is that he assumed that that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. It's something simple that he could then like, I've got an idea. Let's just go, you know? Yeah. And then, Probably the most emotional story, I guess, uh, I felt anyway, is is the final one in these two sets, which is Albie's Angels. And I'll uh, uh, introduce that one. So uh, Albie's Angels is uh, written by Roy Gill, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Roy has written for many big finish ranges, including Dorian Gray, Dark Shadows, 
the Omega Factor, uh, Doctor Who, and most of the uh, Doctor Who new series spinoffs. Um, he's won Scribe Awards for the Dark Shadows 50th anniversary story, Blood and Fire, which was outstanding, uh, just as a sort of aside. I know when they announced that, and I saw, because I used to watch uh, the at least the relaunch, the reboot of Dark Shadows back in the early 90s when it aired here in the States. And I just thought Joanna, I mean, I was maybe 11 when that came out, but like, I just remember seeing Joanna going as the sort of, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what does she play? Like the governess character who comes to Collinsport and just thinking she was so glamorous. So when they, they announced that she was going to be in that audio anniversary story, I was just, I, I, I pre-ordered it immediately. Uh, but sorry, that's a, a, a sort of long aside. Um, but yeah, he won the scribe award for the, for that, for blood and fire and for the 10th doctor and Donna Noble story, the creeping death, which was in a uh, 10th doctor volume three, another outstanding story. Yeah. Um, Roy's debut in the eighth doctor adventures was in stranded two with unit dating, which again, for your debut into a range, like that is, you know, like I was saying, John Dorney has, has sort of been the sort of emotional core or write, writing the emotional core of the Eighth Doctor, Liv and Helen team uh, since Dark Eyes Four. Like a life in the day is it is a titanic story. It is an amazing achievement uh, and a great story for Liv. Like he writes these stories that bring you into the emotional life of these companions in a way that you know other other writers just don't. And I don't know whether that's on purpose or 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 or, or what it is. But John Dorney has really been sort of, and he introduced Liv. In, or, or Helen in Doom Coalition 1 with the Red Lady, which is another just – another brilliant yeah. – just tight, like amazing stories. So to have Roy come in – and again, that's why I was saying earlier as sort of a rising star in this range because obviously he's a brilliant writer in his own right, mm-hmm. independent of anything else. But you know, as, as familiar, as intimate as I am with the, with the Eighth Doctor range, like to, to, to hear unit dating and be like, holy uh, – sorry <laughs> – <laughs> almost, uh, almost started dropping bombs. Uh, I, w- I will not. I, w- I will not curse. Uh, I'm going to try. I've been doing a good job. Um, absolutely phenomenal debut for uh, uh, for a writer into this range, and so this sort of carries on almost directly from that because I think that was the first time that Albie was even mentioned because uh, we have some idea of her history before but not this particular brother. Um, so anyways, uh, unit dating for which Albie's angels is a thematic sequel, uh, in it, Helen gets zapped back to the sixties by a weeping angel where she meets her long lost brother. So that's the, there's, there's the synopsis, but yeah, as you're saying, Mark, this is, and I think Ross, you've gestured toward it earlier. Like this is not just, this is not just a story. This is, this is another potential award winner. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's so much going on. I mean, it's one. It's a great story. Halfway through, I'm walking my dog, listening to this one, going, "Oh, good, a good weeping angel story." Because there's some bad, you know, it's they're hard to do. And I think, you know, uh, I think the last time, I think they got them right in Jody with Jody because they were scary again. And I thought they were scary in this one. They should be scary. You should be a you should be afraid of them. But also, Roy added another sort of dimension to them, which is character. You know, they've talked, they've talked through other, other, other uh, uh, voices. They've used other characters' voices before, but never really had character of their own. And that is, that is an achievement. Yeah. Well. Oh yeah. That they're, that they love, they, they have a familial connection, you know, that they, you know, they don't have individual personalities per se, but they do care for one another. And they will do whatever they can to rescue one of their own. 
And that's one of the extraordinary things too, especially coming out of Stranded 4, where, uh, you know, obviously Liv and, uh, Liv and Tanya get to have their happy ending, which is, again, it's an incredible ending for, for Liv's character, even though she continues, which is phenomenal also. Uh, but the, the fact that Liv brings up to the doctor, the fact that they use pronouns, you know, the angel called the other angel her. Yeah, I, that just, really, I thought that was a great moment. He doesn't milk it. It's just like this is a fact that Liv is bringing up. You know, there's no – and again, this is one of the great things about Nicola Walker, the way she approaches this character is, you know, as good an actress as she is, that we – it's that you never have a doubt that Liv is an alien, like that she's not a human from the planet Earth. No. You know, just the way that she approaches things is so – it's just it's it's Livchenka. You know, you have this idea that yes, she's from another planet, and yes, she views our you know human mores uh, as as unusual and strange. Yeah. What I also like that just saying that they they used a pronoun in the fact to point to the fact that these angels see themselves somewhat as individuals and have agency. Mm-hmm. That mean that's all that means. It's like that you ha- doctor, you got to think about this. Don't let that go past because don't of your fear of the angels or whatever reason she's pointing out is to point out that they are connected. And I don't know if she means it to manipulate or just as a fact, but it allows him to go, okay, I can, I can get what I want because they, they, they feel value in one another. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, that was a nice twist to that because it is about the value it's a story i mean this is a story about how we value one another in a mm-hmm. way because al helen's got she knows the end of that she thinks she knows the end of albie's story mm-hmm. she knows how horrific it is that is what she's absurd you know the the being four ten years in prison mm-hmm. you know and i was waiting for them to talk about chemical castrate i really thinking you know don't go i don't want you to go that far with the story but you could um but knowing y'all's laws back then that that was a possibility and how what what is she thinking as someone who is of of albie's time and the doctor and helen are not and roy roy i think does a really good job both in this one and in unit dating of, of 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 walking that line like that this is ultimately it's a Doctor Who story, yeah. so you're you're not going to push it that far. You can you can certainly imply it, and I think it is implied. Yeah, it that is those, that those words happen because again, it's and, and that that is all down to Helen Sinclair who uh, or Hattie Morhan who's just a tour de force. Oh my story. god, just absolutely carries the story. Yeah, and uh, the gentleman who plays her brother and um, let me find LB. Barnaby Jago. Bar- Barnaby Jago. I like that. I like that he ends up in Lightfoot's house and his last name's Jago. Yeah. Like, that had to have been on purpose. That had to have been on purpose. They cast him and I'm like, where are we going to have him live? With Jago? No, you have him live with Lightfoot. <laughs> um, and Bailey, Alec, Alex Muganino. Pronouncing that Mugnani. probably horrendously wrong. Uh, they're very good. Uh, the whole cast is really good. The nasty housekeeper or landlord. Oh, oh my God. God. You know? And I think that's where that, uh, you know, that, that, that those extremes that you were talking about, they come through through that. Yes, character. yes. It would, you know, and we're going to play that, that that idea of this is, a, you know, that type of attitude is bad. There's no – you can't polish that. You know, I, you yeah. don't have any – you know, they – 
you have no sympathy for because she's not a very nice person. She wants Liv's necklace. She's selfish. She's self-absorbed. It's all about her, you know. Yeah, the, the, the villainy in this story, as as nasty as it is, is all pettiness. Yeah. You know, whether it's the 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 is, is it Harper the name yeah. of the the people who own the the records the record yeah. store. Uh, I lo- and I love that in the in the behind the scenes that he says that he's his character is described as an evil hipster. I did. I love that. I, just, I yeah. love that. <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the, the evil in this story is pettiness. Like it's not the weeping. Like that's the, you know, it's the cover of the it's the cover of the CD is the weeping angel like reaching out over Helen's head. But like it's the, the weeping angel is not the is not what you expect to be the evil in this story is not the evil. You know, the evil is the the social yeah. the social norms. Yeah. I think that's what makes them a good um, – their plot device really. And then he gives them something to do you know, because he could have just had them being, oh, this guy's trapped an angel. Yeah. But, but he, mm-hmm. he was smart enough to add to the angels to make – give the angel a story. Mm-hmm. So all their yeah. – instead of just that predatory instinct of theirs to steal your potential. And that's one of my favorite things about the angels is that it steals something abstract, mm-hmm. you know, and, but it mm-hmm. doesn't, but see, in a way I'll be breaks that mold because he and him and ba- Bailey end up with more potential because they can be together in the past. Yep. They, you know, they get that happy ending. And that's another thing I feel like Roy adds in this story to another dimension to the angels, which is that you do have this idea of them, or at least I do, of the weeping angels as sort of instinctual predators. That you know, as soon as you blink, you're going to get touched, and you go to like that. That it's that it's automatic, and then you get that scene toward the end mm-hmm. when you know Liv and Helen, or uh, Liv and the Doctor, are coming back with the angel from the future to you know to to rescue Helen in the past. And, you know, when once they're once they're in the room together and Harper, like, turns off the light to try and get, you know, get rid of Helen, the angel just stands there. Like, it's not that it's not an automatic instinctive. It's not an animal, in other words. And that, I think, is a like it's a huge distinction that Roy brings and a new dimension that he brings to the, to the Weeping Angels is that there is intention. You know, that there is agency, yeah. that there is uh, decision making, that it's not simply uh, lights off feet. Yeah. It just gave it too much that the, and then again this the other thing about creating atmosphere when they're outside in the snow having the snowball fight and then having to run across a frozen pond to escape mm-hmm. the angel and then Helen knowing yes I know we're on the ice but she's made a stone we're not going to fall through she's going to fall through and sink and we can get away it's great and I could see that on TV that'd be a great action sequence yep and it just perfectly paced yeah. and everything and. That mod, the more modern who companion who has more agency to be the action hero, to be the center of the show for for their turn, you know, that everybody gets. And I like how they balance these two box sets. You know, this one's more Helen centric. This one. And they allow. And Paul McGann, who is the star. I don't think he has any problem that some stories I'm in the background. Because this story is about Helen's journey. This is I'm the doctor. I'm my thing is I take humans on an adventure and watch them grow and become more of more of themselves. And that's why I pick them. And it is it is one of the I feel unique, if not like emphasized things about this particular range and this particular TARDIS team is that it it, it really is co-lead. Yes. 
you know, that any, any of these three actors can, yeah. can do the work and they do it so well. And you were, uh, we were talking just a minute ago about the, the love vampires. And I was thinking about what you were just saying, Ross, and the behind the scenes for that specific story is that, uh, um, Nicola and Paul are, you know, talking together in the behind the scenes and, and, and Nicola actually slips up and she says, well, you know, I was, I, I wasn't really very useful in that. Like my, my knowledge didn't help. My medical knowledge didn't help. She's like, I really let you down. I'm sorry, doctor. He's <laughs> like, it's a good thing I was there, you know, the, but that, the, again, it's like, it transcends, you know, what's written on the page is that the, the way they get along, even though it's behind the scenes, it carries into those stories. And like, and 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 you're 100 percent right. Like that, there is that idea that you know sometimes Liv is in charge, sometimes Helen's in charge. Like that 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 there is that sort of equity of of agency between the the three leads. That there's no there's no selfishness uh, in the way that they approach the way that they approach these uh, uh, these stories and the way that they interact. Yeah. When they switched, when they said Stranded was going to be the last of the box set series era, and I was like, okay, that's probably a good idea. Stranded was a nice bow. Because I thought it was amazing. I thought it was very different than anything before, and it was good to end there. But I wasn't sure how they were going to do it. And I really, but like I said, at the end, I thought Helen was going to stay. And it was just, I mean, Liv was going to stay, and we weren't going to have her anymore. It was going to be, were they going to take a break, and we're not going to see what happens next? And they're going to, we're like, now they're doing, you know, an era of the time war where he travels with somebody that we know doesn't know him and dies. So they're going to time war, you know that timey-wimey thing, which I'm all in. It's Paul McGann doing The Doctor. And I've liked some of these other companions. They put, you know, I like his other companions, just not as much as I like. Not, not as much. much as I like Liv. Liv is... I mean, I, I, like, I like you. I was, I was, and I don't know that you go this far, but I was genuinely terrified towards the end of Stranded that, that, that this was going to be the end of this I, Yeah, I was very, I was going to be upset. <laughs> I was, because... In the TV, sh- in the modern TV show, there are companions that I have liked a great deal. I don't think there's one that I absolutely adore and I can focus on. I'm a bit, you know, my first is Sarah Jane, so Sarah Jane's important. I don't, but I'm also one of those people like I don't get the the upset when the doctor changes or the command changes. To me, it's like okay. I'm going to mourn for about 10 minutes and then I'm going to go, where's the new one? You know, I know I'm, uh, I've been watching, I've been following this show for 40 some years. It's part of the show. It's why I love the show. It's like, how are you going to reinvent yourself? Let's see how you're going to do it. Um, and I think I, that's kind of what I was hoping for this. And I was, I'm glad, I wish I had had a period between the first set and the second set because I basically listened to them straight through. That's what I was listening to after work for the last 10, 14 days. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of wish I'd had that separation with the box sets. Um, I try not to, I mean, I get behind, but when I get behind on my big finish, I make sure I'm going in order. So I'm jumping from one thing to another because that's the joy of it. Um, Yeah. You know, I want a sixty story. I want a river story. I want a Missy. But I wish I hadn't. I wish I could have. I had more of a separation of these two sets. Because to me, because they did come out like a, m- a month and a half apart, right? Like November. Yeah, but they back to back. Yeah, they were two. They were back to back. I I thought month to month, two months. I think it was more or less to get it mm-hmm. to get McGann back on schedule. Yeah, and I have a feeling so that we're doing so that we're doing more or less two a year now. 
Is that, that it for you? Okay. All the other doctors. And, okay, and he's going to have this. He's going to have these companions, and he's going to have – I don't know how many – I don't know. Did they announce if that cast set is ongoing? I'm not yeah. sure. That one – because it just came out, and because I've been prepping right. for this one, I haven't – Yeah, I've, I've, I've been holding it. I want to – I'm really excited for it. I'm saving that yeah. one because I – these are my favorite. I would like the stuff in the future, and I like what they've done, but I'm less interested in it. Yeah, this is more my home base. But yeah, I don't want to get off of Albie's Angels yet because I just I want to I want to make sure that I I bring up that you know yeah it's a serious story and yeah you know we get really emotional performances especially from uh, from Hattie but that there that Roy does not sa- also does not sacrifice humor like that there is there there are laugh laugh out loud moments in this one and again he sneaks them in under the like he just makes them part of conversation like there's one part where the doctor and Liv uh, have have the heart to hearts that they've been having since, since she joined in like in doom in, in dark eyes too, where they will have a, a, a scene together where they are just talking like adults. Um, but, mm-hmm. that, but, but also again, with that, with that element of, you know, teasing that they have, because the, uh, the doctor is talking about, you know, I've got all this, you know, regeneration energy and all these like longer lives um, that the, that the angels could really feast on and lives responses yeah, you really are a snack. And I'm like, that is, that is the craziest joke. Like that is the silliest joke that you can put in there uh, at that moment. And just like, they just, they don't even, they don't acknowledge it. They just go on. She's like, yeah, you're really a snack. Like that is, that is such a funny joke. That, is, that just made me laugh so hard. Uh, but there's also another sort of vocal tick that the McGann has, doctor has had for ages and ages, as far back as I can remember as far back as the Lucy one where he will describe his companion to somebody. So for example, uh, there was one, uh, one of the Lucy adventures where he says, Oh, I'm looking for someone, Lucy, yay tall, loves shopping and telling hilarious anecdotes. Like he just has that. There's that pattern. And then later on with Liv, uh, it may even be in a life in the day where he walks up to the hotel counter and says, yes, I'm looking for someone Liv." Yay tall, sarcastic, as though that were a description that anyone would be able to recognize. <laughs> but Roy throws one of those in in Albie's Angels. He walks up to the counter at the at the record store and he says, yeah, we're looking for someone. Helen Sinclair, quizzical expression, long hair, may have her face buried in a secondhand book. Like I just I love I yeah. love those those little those little it's like it's it's it's, it's garnish. It's presentation. But it it, it, it flows mm. so well with the characters, the way we know them. And even if you don't know them, like it's an introduction to them and the way that they interact, the way they get together. And again, I just cannot get over it and I will not stop talking about how Liv called the doctor a snack. Like, I'm just like, that is, that's, it's, it's yeah. too funny. It's too funny. Yeah, I think it's a terrific story. I think, as you said, Ross, it is difficult to do the Weeping Angels, right? And it's even harder on audio because they are such a kind of visual monster. You know, the, the jump scares come from them, a character turning around and they're, and they're suddenly, uh, you know, kind of looming over them. So I think, you know, that, the accomplishment yeah, of that they, is fantastic. They've taken and that then, sound cue that the show uses, mm-hmm. which is... It, it, yeah, it's like a thing, isn't it? Like a cello movie yeah. or something. Yeah, like a, yeah. It's a great, it's a perfect little sound effect. Yeah, and then the... the the interactions between Helen and her brother Albie and this are just just beautiful. When, oh, when he figures out it's her, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, there's there's all the time where they just have that connection, and you know they 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 just showing each other kindness, and and it, and it kind of shows you know what, what they had in common when they were kids, mm-hmm. and and how lovely it is. And then when he realizes 
who they are, but all the time she's got this knowledge that, you know, this is before something yeah. awful happened to him and he was never the same again. And yeah, it's it's so well done and so well acted. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And and then the fact that they don't give him that really unhappy ending that you're expecting, just yeah, you're so relieved. Yeah, I was really it, relieved. Yeah. I was like, please don't end on that. Please. And then and I was thinking it's a it's the final one in the set. They're not gonna do that. They're not gonna that would be <laughs> bad. Would be, That'd be cruel. That, uh, I would have preferred uh, if it wasn't this. I preferred that we're going to go find him. Yeah, you know, we're going to try to find him. Mm. But I like how they left notes. Like he sees the TARDIS in the corner yeah. of something that's been pinned to yeah. that board for thirty years. Thirty years, yeah, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> no, it's more than thirty because it was sixty. So it's almost sixty years. Yeah. So it's something because I think yeah. they land in 2025. Yeah, it's 2025. They gave it, they moved, they did that old Doctor Who thing. It's two years in the future. You know, so, uh, but because I love that too when they land and Liv is like, haven't we done enough damage to this, to this era? Yeah. And then she corrects herself. She's like, oh, wait, hasn't it done enough damage to us? Yeah. I love, I love, I love yeah. that stuff. Because <laughs> again, you don't need to know everything about Stranded to get. To, 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 to feel what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you don't have to know any of the box set stuff that went on and on, you know, because they all had their little thing, you know, and, and moved to, and moved them all forward. I mean, mm-hmm. they, because they get to Stranded, they've just survived this massive adventure mm-hmm. in Ravenous. And Stranded was such a change in tone um, and then this is kind of a change in tone, but it's kind of like a revert. It's reverting to the doc to Doctor Who's natural state, base state of adventure storytelling. You know, but, but again, with this, with this set, with both of these sets, like they never sacrifice like the the, the depth of character. They never they never sacrifice that for. A, a, an easy episodic no, story. Yeah, they basically just start changing the framing elements and they're still doing the stories that they want to tell, which are really good character pieces. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. almost every one of these, it's a character piece, whether mm-hmm. it be scary or funny or, you know, uh, like this one. This one's very action-oriented, too, in a lot of ways. There's a lot going on. Yeah, and, and I think making the audience feel sympathy for a weeping angel is... Is a, is no mean feat as well, and I. And I yeah. think that- well, a good villain has to. You have to have empathy. You don't have to like them. Mm-hmm. You just have to understand why they're doing what they do. Because there are every villain is the hero in their own story. Mm-hmm. There is no the blah. You don't want to. I don't like a blah villain unless it's a comedic way, like in Pirate Planet or something like that. The villain doesn't think he's a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. And, you know, you can that and to show them having agency and having a communal, uh, you know, that they will rescue one another just makes the story better and also makes you go, wait a minute. So this isn't about the angels. You know what I mean? That that they're you know, this is the more we hear Albie and the and oh, they spent so much time with Albie and Helen. I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just they mm-hmm. commit to that, that you guys are going to do most of it. And Helen really gets to be the doctor. Oh, yeah. I feel like that is, that's completely appropriate. I mean, we've seen, as you were saying, Mark, earlier, talking about the fairy tale of Salzburg and Better Watch Out, like where she, you know, takes a good 60 years to learn how to fly the TARDIS. Like this is this is someone who has 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 been has been here mm-hmm. and done this. 
And like the fact that she is able to like guide Albie through the scene you were talking about earlier, Ross, where they're running through the snow trying to get away from the angel and saying, well, I've got to get the sonic screwdriver. Don't, you know, don't close your eyes or like tells, you know, coaches him to close his eyes so that he can see what they're dealing with. Like she knows yeah. how to do this. And that is, it's so impressive to like watch and her. And has her own it. sonic screwdriver in the story as well, which is, yeah, yeah it's kind of a big deal for companion, isn't it? Yeah. And that scene at the beginning, again, it's that those moments of humor that come through the the sort of what could be maudlin or bleak sort of storytelling where Liv is like, wait a second. No, yeah. I get one. yeah, I like that. What's my, wait a minute. I've been doing this longer than her. <laughs> <laughs> They're so good. They're yeah. so good together. But I got to say that this this is one of my favorite. I think this is going to be one of those Touchstone McGann mm. Epp stories. Uh, like Salzburg one, Lady in Red is for me. Um, uh, I think Chimes of Midnight. Yeah, you know, kind of. You know, if I'm going to go that back, mm-hmm. um, I'm a fan of this era. I was a fan of the box set era. Um, I really liked. I loved Ravenous because I thought it was actually scary. Mm-hmm. That the the monster was so scary. The Eleven went. F this, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I just soiled myself. I'm not scared and I'm a sociopath. I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I like it when you'd see, you know, what I want something that's going to scare the doctor. And I mean, not just scare, but give him a, a, a panic attack mm-hmm. almost. Like these are, this is what we have nightmares about. So, uh, but it just, this one is so, if they keep going like this, it's just, we're in for a lot of fun. Before we go, I really also want to sort of shout out uh, Rafe, Rafe Wallbank, uh, the, the the cover artist. I'm holding these the wrong way. Uh, like anyone can he like anyone can see it on audio, but like <laughs> uh, he did recently, or uh, yeah, Rafe recently did. It's Rafe Ski on on Twitter, but recently did a, a video podcast with Josh Snares. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the official Josh Snares YouTube channel. Uh, talking specifically about his design work for Big Finish. And uh, they go into specific detail about making these covers. Uh, but everything about everything about these sets, uh, 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 four stars. And yeah, please give Roy the award for Albie's Angels. Whoever, whoever gives awards. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, two fantastic sets. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, a lot more to come, as you say. So uh, if you'd just like to let our listeners know where we can find uh, each of you elsewhere on the internet. Uh, so Ross? Well, you can find me at Galfrey's Most Wanted. Um, every other week, me and Vic cover a Doctor Who story. And then on off weeks, I have guests. Mark comes on and we talk Doctor Who comic books. We're going to do some chatting soon about Beep, Meep, Beep, the Meep. <laughs> yep. Because a cartoon character is going to come live action. And I'm overjoyed that it is that warm, fuzzy sociopath Beep. Um, or you can find me on my comic book podcast, Stop, Let's Team Up. Uh, and I've started a new one dedicated to the Star uh, Starman Legacy, which is a DC had a superhero named Star- – they've had eight, nine, ten now, Starman. It's kind of like the Doctor, but it's about that legacy of heroes. And that's a new podcast. And then uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, my name is Melvin again. Um I'm on Twitter at Kittenry, which is K-I-T-T-E-N-R-Y. Just a made-up word from a million years ago. It's just like the mischief that kittens get into. I don't know why I chose it. Uh, and then I'm on Instagram at Melvin2 underscores Pena, P-E-N-A. 
I don't have any other podcasts. Uh, I just, I, I'm super ecstatic and very, very grateful again to you, Mark, and to you, Ross, for welcoming me into the Trap One family. If I never do another Doctor Who podcast, I am over the moon to have been on one of my absolute favorites. I'm so grateful to y'all. Oh, we're very grateful to, to, to have you. It was, it was a blast. Yeah. And uh, I will message you offline because I'd like you to come on and talk McGann for one of my off-week shows. I would shows. absolutely love to. Yeah, we do. I'd like to do one where we cover a whole doctor kind of or chunks of seasons of doctors. So I'll be reaching out to you. Fantastic. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Quark McMalice. And you can find the podcast at Trap One underscore. Find all our previous episodes at trapone.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing the podcast on your favorite podcast app and encourage your friends and loved ones to do the same. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. See y'all later.